It was 1.03pm when Gladys Berejiklian bounded into a news conference to drop a bombshell. It pains me to announce that I have no option but to resign from the office of Premier. No option because an hour earlier, the Independent Commission Against Corruption announced an investigation into the Premier's conduct during a scandalous relationship with former MP Daryl Maguire. The clean-skinned Premier's 18-year political career brought down by a secret romance. Well, this is uh, still shocking, isn't it? And uh, maybe a little too soon to be playing that. It's very raw for those of us who actually really liked Gladys and mostly liked the way she led us. This is quite a tragic and shocking turn of events. And that kind of summarizes it well. I mean, could one bad decision that she made possibly have undone everything good, not just her career, but everything good that she had done, especially in the last year or so. Well, the book of Joshua is the book all about God delivering on His promises. Israel has finally conquered and settled into the promised land, but are they about to have their gladdest moment? In other words, could one incident possibly undo everything good that had happened to them that God had delivered for them? Now, if you're reading this for the first time, and some of you may be reading this for the first time, and that's why we didn't finish reading the whole chapter yet. I kind of want to keep you in suspense you'll see how much is at stake. Um, Because now that they've possessed the land, and just because they've now possessed the land and come into their inheritance, it does not mean that the threat is now over, right? Because it's always possible for everything to be undone by them now turning away from God and disobeying God. Now, it's pretty easy to see that this is where it might, we might come in as, as modern believers. Because just because you've become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, doesn't mean that the danger and the threat is over for us either, is it? I mean, there's always going to exist threats that will undo all the good that God has begun to do for us and in us when we become Christians. And they could be as small or seem as insignificant as one stone altar from Joshua 22. So let's pray and let's have a look at what this passage has to teach us today. Father, we pray As we look at this chapter and the turn of events and also the resolution of these events, Lord, we know that your word is alive and active and we want to learn what you have to speak to us today. So I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you might help me to do that as I teach it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first point, Um, just a bit of background. Um, At the end of Moses' leadership uh, back in Numbers 22, We've got two and a half tribes there. Um, uh, Sorry, we've got the whole of Israel there requesting to get safe passage through from the east side of the Jordan to the west side. All right. The land that they were supposed to conquer was only on the west side of the Jordan. But the two kings that owned the land on the east side opposed them and then battle ensued. And under Moses' leadership, um, they conquered them. Right? They've defeated the two kings. They took the land. Now, remember I said only the land on the west side was supposed to be the land for the people of Israel, their inheritance. But at the end of that battle, the couple of battles, the two and a half tribes that we're talking about, there's 12 tribes of Israel, two and a half of them, Reuben, Gad, and the half, half of Manasseh, they asked Moses a special request. Right? They wanted to be able to settle on that east side of the Jordan, the, the land they just took from the kings. Now, Moses said, yep, you could do that on one condition. 
right? You could do that as long as your fighting men still cross the Jordan to the west and join the rest of Israel for the battles. Until that's finished, then you could cross back to the east side of the Jordan, return back to your homes and your families. Okay, so that's kind of caught us up on all the background information, right? That's from Numbers. So in Joshua chapter 22, after all the things that we've seen in Joshua, um, it begins with Joshua now honoring um, their side of the bargain, all right? Joshua basically says, and we won't read those verses again, he's basically said, okay, you've done your side of the deal. You said you would come and help us fight. You've done that. We've now taken the west side. Now you go back to the east side in peace, but don't forget, right? Don't forget to faithfully follow the Lord. Don't forget to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. Now all seems great, but then have a look at verse 10 again. When they came to Geliloth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. Now that may not at first seem like a big deal to us. I mean, walk around the neighborhood, there's churches, there's places of worship everywhere. But it was absolutely a big deal for the people of Israel. You see, in Deuteronomy, a couple of books before Joshua, God had made it really clear. Look at these verses. Let me read out for you. God commands them, you are not to do as we do here today, everyone doing as they see fit. Since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you, but you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. And then this next bit is really important. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, and there observe everything I commanded you. It's probably a sermon for another day, but the, the, the point throughout the whole Bible, both then and now, is that worshiping God can only be on God's terms, all right? Because God is God, He is holy, He is unique, He is perfect. We worship Him on His terms. Anything else is basically idolatry. Now, back then, right, that was only at one place and at that place that God had chosen only. So from the time of Joshua, from the time they took the land until actually the time of King David, that place was at a place called Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle, the, the kind of temporary temple, was located. Now, that would be eventually moved to Jerusalem when David comes on the scene, when the temple gets built. But right now, it's in Shiloh. Now, where is Shiloh? Well, have a look there. Shiloh is on the west side of the Jordan in the tribe of Ephraim. So for the eastern tribes on their way back to set up an altar... Well, that was interpreted as setting up an alternative site of worship, right? I mean, why would you set up an altar except to offer burnt sacrifices and perform worship? That was directly disobeying what God had said in Deuteronomy 12. So this action that the two and a half tribes did, well, that causes an immediate reaction. So look again at verse 11. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Geliloth near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Now, very few of us would be alive to remember this, but in October 1962, 
You don't know, the world actually nearly descended into World War III, nuclear war. Uh, this was during the height of the Cold War. You might remember studying that at school or something. But on this tiny little island of Cuba, there was a major political and military confrontation between the USA and the USSR. Now, this crisis only lasted 13 days, but, like, no exaggeration, it nearly destroyed the world. It's called the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, this was Israel's Cuban Missile Crisis moment. Now, in case you see their action as just a diplomatic bluff, I want to show you verse 33 towards the end. We didn't read it before, but they were ready. Look at that word. They were ready to devastate the land of these two and a half tribes. The word there in other translations is ravage or destroy. It's actually a fairly unique word used up to this point in the Bible, mainly in Genesis, to describe what? The flood. When God sent the flood to destroy the world in the time of Noah, that was the word. Okay, this is a word loaded with judgment, complete and utter destruction. That's what they were ready to do. Pretty big deal, huh? Now, modern readers like us tend to see this as a bit of a trigger-happy overreaction. Or you might criticize them for, why didn't you like apply better listening skills? Or aren't there better steps to conflict resolution? That was my first reaction anyway. Now, I've realized that that would actually be a mistake to react like that. It actually says more about us than them. Because remember, this is not an interpersonal conflict, okay? Right? Reflective listening doesn't work in international diplomacy. This is international diplomacy. But more importantly, while we might criticize them, you read this chapter carefully, you realize this chapter doesn't criticize them. It doesn't criticize the Western tribes for being so zealous and so ready for action because if you were them, you would know that the threat was great. And the threat was actually within, much greater than the threat without. So I want you to hopefully have your Bibles open, or you can go to the outline and app, because I'm not going to show you the passage, the rest of the chapter. We're actually going to work through, and we're going to read some of this for the first time. So I'm going to pick up from verse 13, where we left off. And um, yeah, just listen to, to, to how, how interesting this, this narrative plays out. So verse 13. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him, they sent 10 of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And you are now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow, He will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sins. Now, I wonder if you picked up there that really interesting little note. 
that shows us that they didn't do this out of spite. They didn't want to go to war just for the sake of war. Look, remember what they said in verse 19. They basically said, look, come over and share the land with us, right? If there's something wrong with the land over there, just come. We'll, we'll share everything we've got. They were willing to do that. But the, the point they were trying to make is this. It's much more important to be faithful to God than even unity. Unity is important, but not at all costs. I think of my brothers and uh, sisters in the Anglican Church Communion, the Anglican denomination, all around the world now. A lot of them are criticized for splitting the denomination because they, and it's a small group, want to remain faithful to the Bible's teaching about marriage and gender and sexuality. Right? Because they also believe that there's no unity without faithfulness. Now, if we read on, and if you know the story, the Western tribes may have misread the situation. It may have been a misunderstanding. We'll come to that later. But I want you to know at this point that their zeal, their passion is 100% correct, okay? Now, they, they talk about two incidents in their past. Firstly, what happened at Peor, and then they mentioned the sin of Achan, right? And they're saying, don't forget what happened there. They're an object lesson. Don't forget about those things. Now, Achan we know about. You might remember from Joshua chapter 7, so I won't go through that again. But the sin of Peor, that's from Numbers chapter 25. We won't read it, but you can look it up later. Let me tell you what happened. At this place called Peor, on their way to the promised land, the Israelite men are seduced and led astray by Moabite women. And it's not just that they were seduced and led into sexual sin, but part of the sexual sin was worshipping false gods. So they begin to do that. And what happened is God's judgment came swiftly and severely because of that. A plague began to sweep through in the entire camp until someone, and that person will actually be familiar with now because his name was Phineas, son of Eleazar, same guy, much younger man back then. He enacted God's judgment against a particular couple who were really, really bold and brazen in their disobedience. Um, you want to read it later? It's pretty gruesome. He kind of takes a spear and spears them through, skewers them. But once he does that, the plague stops. But by that time, 24,000 had already died. All right, that was the sin at Peor. Israel remembered that. And so they were allergic to any hint of disobedience. They knew what one tiny deviation could do, right? It's just like COVID. One positive case, one limo driver makes such a difference. If only we had this kind of allergic reaction to sin. If only we had this kind of allergic reaction to sin. Now, remember, this is not a lesson in personal conflict, or when we see sin in the life of another brother or sister. Um, when you see someone caught in sin, this is not the text to go, all right, I'm supposed to go ballistic on them. No, no, no. Instead, if you see sin in a brother or sister, just to let you know, Galatians 6.1 is helpful. It says, gently restore, all right? Which means listening, which means understanding. And then if you need to, then lovingly rebuke and correct. Okay, that's interpersonal sin. Right, so this isn't teaching us about that. Remember, this is much more like international diplomacy. But I want you to know, at its core, this allergic reaction to sin and disobedience is absolutely right, huh? Because it sees that the threat within us is always greater than the threat outside of us. 
In fact, this last section of Joshua, over the next three weeks, we'll look at the last three chapters of Joshua. That is the constant theme. Right? The theme is this warning. Be careful. Be careful to keep following God wholeheartedly. Now that you are in the land, now that you've got what God has promised you for your ongoing prosperity in the land, your life of blessing, the threat within you is always going to be the threat greater than the threat outside of you. And in fact, that's actually the history of the whole of the Old Testament. But what did Jesus say? Isn't that what he kind of says in Mark chapter 7? Have a look at that verse. Jesus says, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly... All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, just as an aside, you need to know that Jesus came to deal with the defiling, or defile means to pollute, the polluting power of sin in our hearts. By dying on the cross for our sins, by rising again to new life, Jesus cleanses us and forgives us. And just as an aside, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this can be true for you today, no matter what you've done. Jesus came to deal with that through his death and resurrection. But while Jesus deals with the pollution of sin, he cleans us, and he deals with the penalty of sin because he paid for it on the cross, the Bible teaches that until he returns, the presence of sin still lingers in our lives and in our midst. And so even though we're forgiven, we still need to be so vigilant because the threat of that presence of sin within us and among us is still always going to be greater than any threat we'll face outside. And I wonder if you really believe that. Uh, my missionary friends know that for, for truth. Um, they returned from Pakistan. And you need to know, Pakistan is one of the most dangerous countries to be a Christian and to be a missionary. Always in the top five of most persecuted. Missionaries have literally been killed in Pakistan. And yet as they returned to Australia with their kids, back then they were still young kids, they said to us that their greatest danger was actually coming back to Australia, not remaining in Pakistan, coming back to Australia. Because in Australia, we have consumerism and Western prosperity all around us and all these temptations that actually aren't there in Pakistan. In Pakistan, the threat is real, but it's obvious. In our world, the threat is everywhere and we just don't even know it. See, the threat within is always greater than the threat outside. Our world is getting more hostile to Christians in the church. Maybe religious freedoms will be eroded even more, or maybe or probably will. But do not forget that the threat within is always going to be greater than the threat outside of us. Right? You can persecute the church. You can restrict religious freedoms. But they won't destroy the church. No, sin will. Prosperity will. See, these Western tribes, back to Joshua, their allergic reaction to even a whiff of unfaithfulness to God, it's actually one of the rare shining moments in Old Testament history. You're not going to see it almost anywhere else. All right? And they're absolutely right to be so allergic to sin. And it is a challenge for us. I hope it's a challenge for you personally to be vigilant against the threat within, the sin in your life but also corporately sin that might be in our community as the people of God.
All right, let's keep going on. Verse 21, we're going to pick up the story again. What's going to happen now? Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know. If this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we've built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, or to sacrifice fellow offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear, that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You, Reubenites and Gadites, you have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. Now, you need to just know a bit about geography. That divide between the West and the East was a geographic marvel. And it's not just the river, Jordan. It's the whole Jordan Valley. There's a valley that this river cut through that's actually called the Great Rift. Over 100 years ago, uh, a writer wrote this. He said, There may be something on the surface of another planet to match the Jordan Valley, but there is nothing on Earth that matches it. This is uniquely a huge rift. It goes 100 meters below sea level. It is about 250 kilometers long and up to 25 kilometers wide. You see, their fear was pretty valid. I mean, if during COVID, the New South Wales-Queensland border is so tight, basically we're almost like two countries now, aren't we, New South Wales and Queensland? Or if during the Cold War, that thin wall between East and West Berlin could divide a whole nation, imagine what this valley could do. This is in the ancient world where bridge building and engineering wasn't quite as it is now, huh? So let's keep reading. Verse 26. The two and a half tribes keep, keep explaining. Verse 26, that is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow, that we will worship the Lord at His sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look, at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from Him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before His tabernacle. Now, you notice that they're making the opposite point to the Western tribes. The Western tribes, right? There is no unity without faithfulness. They're saying, hey, there's no faithfulness without unity. They're saying, we're afraid that we won't be faithful without unity. If you guys on the West forget about us, that we're part of the people of God, if you exclude us from worshiping at Shiloh, the center, we might then lose our faith. If we're cut off from you, then we'll be cut off from God. That's what they're saying. So while faithfulness is more important than unity, the flip side is also true. It's an interesting point, isn't it? It's actually hard to be faithful without belonging to the wider body of believers. That's a good point, to, good time to make a, just a, a slight warning, right? A gentle warning for those who choose not to be part of a community. And let's admit it, COVID makes it easy to really, really 
kind of take a step back from this. Again, I'm not talking about you know, times like COVID or when it's unavailable, when it's hard to access. I'm not talking about that. But it is always really dangerous, isn't it? If you meet a Christian who says, I choose not to belong to a local community of believers. I don't need to. Other people may need to, but I won't. Right? Everyone is wrong except me. Or my reading of the Bible is the only one that I need to pay attention to. I don't need to care about what other people think and the you know, what the believers or pastors or the community of God says. No, no, no. It's just me on my own. It's really dangerous, isn't it? I think COVID has shown all of us that prolonged time away from gathering actually does take a toll on our spiritual health. The vast majority of us found this period, the hundred or so days that we were away, right, meant that we went backwards in our faithfulness to God. Some of you might be an exception, but most of us found it harder. We need each other, don't we? We need community. We need the church. And so let me ask you at this point, when we're, God willing, over the next couple of months, beginning to come back out of lockdown, is really belonging to a church that important to you? Is really belonging? And I don't mean real, I mean really belonging, not just going along, not just attending services and then leaving straight afterwards, not just watching online, not because you have to, but because it's just more convenient, but really belonging, right? Fellowship, partnership, those things. Is that really important to you? Is it important to you because you know and you know your heart that your ability to remain faithful depends on journeying together? And if so, is this going to be really important to you to belong or to belong again? Well, let's go to the resolution. Last few verses, verse 30. When Phineas, the priests, and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phineas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Um, you might not have picked this up, but it only, only, I only picked it up after I read a commentary. That verse 31 here is the first time that the words us and Israelites in this chapter meant all 12 tribes. You see, every other time up to this point, and you can do this again later at home, when they talk about Israelites, they only mean the nine and a half tribes on the West. Now, for the first time in the chapter, Israelites means all of us. They are finally united and faithful together. All right? Crisis averted. And verse 31, you notice he says, this is the clearest sign that God is with us. Now, you get that. This is a sign that God is with us. These are the people who have actually seen the visible presence of God. I mean, the exodus, the wilderness, the battles under Joshua, the walls crumbling down, the sun standing still. I mean, I would have thought they're the signs of God's presence, but no, Joshua says, or Phineas says, it's actually clearest that God is with us when God's people are united in trust and obedience as they're faithful to Him. All right? That's a sign that God is with us. All right, last couple of verses, verse 32. Then Phineas, son of Eleazar, the priests, the leaders, returned to Canaan from the meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites and Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is good. All right, 
final point. Joshua 22, as I said, is one of the rare occasions in the Bible, in the Old Testament story, where God's people were really wholeheartedly faithful. So much so that they were willing to go into civil war. And we see both sides, both the West and the East, acted out of a passion to be faithful. And their actions actually helped each other to be faithful. You see that? They actually provoked each other to faithfulness. And that's a theme I want to pick up as we think about applying it to ourselves. Um, in Hebrews chapter 10, it's a familiar passage, but you may not be as familiar with this translation. It's the reason why I chose it, the ESV. It says, Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now that verb, provoke, in the NIV is spur, but it's actually stronger than spur. It's provoke. Right? If you look up a dictionary of the original Greek, it means to rouse to activity. It means to stir up. It almost means to annoy or irritate. It's like that. Or if you like, it's like be a catalyst. Right? Cause a reaction, but cause a positive reaction. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of active word provoke that we're looking at here. So you see, a sign of a healthy church, a sign that God is with His church, is when a church body does this. When we provoke each other to love God and to love others more. And we consider how we do that, to provoke each other. See, I wonder what it does in your heart when I tell you some of these real examples of people. I won't name anyone. A year 12 going through the HSC who's determined not to miss one day of church or youth group just because they're in exams. A dad of four young kids with a great job who resigned because it was affecting his family life and his spiritual walk. An elder who got sick himself, but was more worried about those he couldn't care for while he was sick. Our very own tech team, who gave up their first two weekends of freedoms so that they could set things up again after our lightning storm power surge. A mom of two young kids drags herself to Bible study even though sleep-deprived and back at work. A retiree saying to the pastor, now that I'm retired, here's two days a week. You can ask me to do anything you want because I want to serve the church now that I've got more time. When you hear those, does it provoke you to do the same? I mean, not out of guilt, not out of shame, but because it inspires or motivates you into action, it does, doesn't it? When you hear stories like that, when you see people around you step up, doesn't it make you think, I want to do that? That's provoking to action. Well, what about you? How has your love for the Lord and others provoked someone else into action? Have you even thought about doing that? Setting an example, being a model. Here's a good way of doing it. Um, I'll steal the idea of paying it forward. You guys know what it means to pay it forward? Why not do this? If even over the last few months, especially during COVID, if you've received anything good from someone, right? If you've seen someone do something good that you've been personally benefited by, whether it's you know, tangible or it's just that their example, pay it forward, right? Pay it forward. Think about what that is and pay that forward to someone else. Okay, again, this is not out of a desire to repay a debt, not out of guilt, but just an idea 
that maybe if you pay it forward, you can provoke someone else just as you've been provoked to love and good deeds. As you know, lockdown is ending. It would be a great pity if our aim as a church, as a body of Christ, is simply just to be able to gather physically together and that's it. Go back to before. No, no. Far better aim, isn't it? To be a church that experiences the presence of God through our unity and our faithfulness in this kind of provoking. We want to be a church where someone comes and they go, wow, God must really be among you. That's much better to aim for, isn't it? Let's get the band up. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be people like that, so set on provoking each other to good works and love because we've experienced your Spirit giving us the zeal to be faithful, just like we read in this chapter of Joshua. We have so many more reasons to do it. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you can make us a church like that for your glory. Amen.